standing for the reading of our passage this morning. Before we begin, I would just want to recognize the auditorium, how beautiful it looks, and appreciate everyone who had a part in in that. Looks really good and gets us ready for the for the season and the meaning of the season. So we certainly appreciate that. We're going to read John chapter eight, starting in verse twenty one. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself, since he says, Where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, we've been following in chapter 8, Jesus going to the Feast of Booze, the Feast of Tabernacles, where we saw that he stood up at the right time and cried out, those who were spiritually thirsty, to come to him. And then we saw that he later said, I am the light of the world, which was clearly declaring himself to be the Messiah. So Jesus was calling out to the Jews, to the Jewish people, to the Jewish leaders, everyone who heard him, he was calling out for them to be saved. But in spite of this, in spite of all of Jesus' teaching, The Jews, particularly the Jewish leaders, refused to believe. They opposed him. They confronted him at every turn. So it became clear that the Jewish leaders were stuck in their unbelief. And in spite of their unbelief, Jesus continued to preach to them. Now Martin Luther called this section here, a dreadful sermon, an appalling and dreadful word of farewell. So why was this sermon, particularly this section, so dreadful? It's because that Jesus is warning here, the Pharisees, that their window of opportunity to believe in him was quickly closing. So let's look there in verse 21, where Jesus warns of his coming departure. Verse 21, so he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So he starts, John says, he said to them again. And so from this point to the rest of the chapter, Jesus is repeating several themes. And he uses these themes to contrast himself with the Jews. And we're going to find, uh, here's some examples of this. Jesus said, I'm from above. 
but you are from below. They are from this world, but Jesus is not from this world. Where he goes, they cannot come. And then later we're going to see that Jesus says that God is his father, but their father is the devil. Now, what Jesus said here in verse 21, it's kind of a repeat of what he said in chapter 7, verse 33 through 34. And uh, I'll read that for you. Jesus said to them, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Now, it's almost exactly what he said in verse 21, except for Jesus add a more threatening tone or a more threatening phrase here in verse 21 again. I am going away, and you will seek me. But he adds this, and you will die in your sin. You will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So when he says that he is going away, at this point, Jesus was about six months away from his crucifixion. And he, the Jews, wanted him to go. And so he's saying, yeah, well, I'm, I'm going to be going. I'm going away. And after I go away, Jesus said, it's then that you will seek me. Now, either Jesus is telling them that they will continue to seek for a Messiah that will never come because he is the Messiah, or one day they will seek Jesus because they will desire to be forgiven, and yet they will not find him. It will be too late. We have to sometimes, when we share the gospel with people, make that very clear to them, right? That now is the appointed time. Today is the day of salvation. We are not promised tomorrow or next week or a year from now. A lot of people say, well, I I need to give my life to Christ, but I'm going to wait. Well, you're not promised. And so Jesus is warning them that he's there now. The time to be saved is now. One day you will seek me, but you will not find me. And then he he adds this ominous warning. He says, you will die in your sin. Now, notice the word sin there. In the Greek, it's homotia, right? Um, It is a dative singular, which merely means that it's translated in sin. It's a singular, in sin. So why did Jesus use the singular here and not the plural, sins? I mean, obviously, we're all guilty of sins, so why did Jesus use the word sin here because they were guilty of all kinds of sins but at this point they were guilty of one particular sin and that was the sin of unbelief the sin of unbelief and it is that very sin that will keep anyone out of heaven right we are all guilty of sin just think how many times a day do you sin oh multiple right and add that times how long do you live 80 years You're guilty of hundreds of thousands of sin. Christ came to forgive us. And the only sin that will keep you out of heaven, the only sin that will keep you from the forgiveness of all those other sins is the sin of unbelief. And you will die, he says, in your sin. Now this is very different, is it not? When Jesus said, where I go, you cannot come very different from what Jesus said to his disciples 
in John chapter 14, verses 2 and 3. Jesus said, There in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you, or would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And then he says this, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Isn't that a great contrast to these unbelieving Jews? He says, where I go, you cannot come. And then to his disciples, where I go, there you will be also. What is the difference? The difference between belief and unbelief. And so, this is the very point that John makes throughout his whole gospel, right? In John chapter 1, verse 12, he says, To all who did receive him, that is, to believe, he says, who believed in his name, those who receive him and believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's how he starts out this gospel. And then in John three sixteen, if we believe in the Son, we will not perish but have everlasting life. And John tells us at the end of the gospel, and we've read this many times, we need to remember why he's writing this book to begin with. He, he tells us in verse 31 of John 20, but these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, he is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So that's why he's contrasting here the difference between belief and unbelief. For the Pharisees, they refuse to believe in Jesus. You will die in your sin of unbelief, and you will not be able to go where I am. And then later his disciples, when you believe in me, you'll have everlasting life. Wherever I go, there you will be as well. And this is the essence of the gospel. Believe in the Son, and you will live. It's a very simple thing very simple it's amazing more people don't believe just trust in christ very simple it's not by works we can never work hard enough or be good enough to earn salvation that's why salvation is a gift of god given by the grace of god in ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 but the good news comes with a warning and that warning is is that all who reject Christ, if you do not believe in him, if you refuse to trust in him, you will perish and suffer everlasting death. That's an ominous warning. That's not the kind of warning that you hear very often today. It's not the kind of warning that you, that you hear from even from pulpits sometimes. And since the Pharisees are refusing to believe in Jesus as their Messiah, Jesus tells them straight out, you will die in your sin, and you will not be able to go where I go. Now, the Pharisees didn't understand. Well, we saw, I think, last week that they were stuck in willful, willful ignorance. But in verse 22, they clearly didn't understand, or they were mocking him, a little bit of both. In verse 22, so the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. Now, in seven, chapter 7, verse 34 and 35, when Jesus said, I was, I'm going away, they misunderstood him there too. They thought, well, he's going to the Gentiles. He's going to the diaspora. 
But here they specifically, um, in a very mocking way, ask if he was going to kill himself. Now, why would they, why would they mock Jesus like that? Well, Josephus, the Jewish historian of the first century, tells us that suicide was considered by the Jews one of the worst offenses that a person could commit. In fact, they they believed that that offense of suicide would land the offender in the deepest part of Hades because there was no atonement for their sin. It was um, now the only exception to this was in response to a military invasion like Masada. I don't know if you have heard that story or not, but when the Romans were getting ready, one of the last holdouts of of the Jewish people was the top of Masada. And uh, before the Romans finally got there, there was women and children and all that, and they all committed suicide, and that is seen as a last stand and a noble effort. And still today, the Israeli soldiers are commissioned on top of Masada, and they are told to remember Masada. They are to remember. Before they are completely wiped out and taken captive, uh, they, they would do the noble thing. Now, the Jews, so were basically responding to Jesus, saying, well, he must be, if we can't go where he's going, he must be, kill, he must, he's probably going to kill himself and go to hell. And since we're the Jewish leaders, we're going to go to heaven. <laughs> so he must be ready to kill himself so that he would go to hell. And here is a, another example of, the darkness of sin, the blindness that sin creates. Most people in the world believe they're going to heaven. If they didn't, they couldn't sleep at night, right? If they really believe that they were in danger of going to hell. And they have come up, people have been very creative and sometimes not so creative. They have come up with a simple formula, right? How do I know that I'm going to heaven when I die? Well, at least I'm better than my neighbor, they'll say. Or, I haven't killed anybody. Or, I try, emphasis on try, to keep the Ten Commandments. Good luck with that. How, how's that going for you, right? But there'll, there'll always be some kind of a comparison. At least I'm not a Hitler or something. Always some kind of a comparison that makes us feel better and look righteous compared to other people. But we have to point out to people that God does not grade on a curve. There is only one standard, and that standard is Christ. You could also say the law of God, but it's one and the same. Jesus kept the law of God perfectly, right? There's one standard. And so most people believe that they are good enough to go to heaven based on their good works. They, they don't believe that they need Jesus. They really don't. In fact, if you ask a lot of people, they think that there's more than one way to God. You know, just find your own way. You can go into Buddhism or Hinduism. There's so many religions in the world. Just find your own way to God. But what does Jesus say about that? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Jesus was exclusive. He excluded all other ways. And if I were the devil... I would create a lot of religions to confuse people, to say exactly what they're saying. There's so many religions, how do, how do you know which one is the way? If I were the devil, that's what I would do. 
I would confuse people with many, many religions. But Jesus is the only way. And, and the, the interesting thing is that these same people who believe that they're good enough and that they will go to heaven when they die, even not receiving Christ, um, they get really upset and angry when you try to point out their sin or that you help you try to convince them that they need a savior why do i need a savior i'm i'm fine and the problem is i think that too many preachers today are willing to accommodate that they've taken a poll out there and they've decided that the lost people they really don't want to hear hellfire brimstone condemnation sin uh, they just they they really just want to hear how they can have their best life, right? They just want to know how that they can live and be successful and have a successful marriage and how to have uh, a successful family. All well and good, right? But the preachers today, many of them have stopped being preachers and started being pulpit psychologists and life coaches, and they all tend to have a positive and encouraging message that makes the sinner comfortable in their sin and they leave with a with a good feeling but just by way of contrast right here that's not the way jesus taught is it <laughs> he didn't try to make the pharisees feel good in their sin he, he flat out told them you will die in your sin. So he was telling these religious leaders the truth that they were in danger of hell if they did not repent and believe. So Jesus answers the Pharisees in verse 23. Notice what he says. He said to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. What Jesus is saying to them is, you think that I'm going to hell and you're going to heaven, but actually it's the exact opposite. You're from below. I'm from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. It's interesting that Jesus uses the word cosmos here, as in the word cosmology. I've, we've pointed this out before. Women wear cosmetics, <laughs> and that merely means they're ordering their face. So cosmology, cosmos, means to order. It could mean world or order, or it can actually mean world order. And so Jesus is saying that you are from the world order of below. I am from the world order of above. I'm from above. Now, Jesus is not contrasting here the difference between spiritual and material world. He's not a Gnostic. There are a lot of people believe that this material world is evil, and so we have to escape this material world to go into the spiritual world where that's where all the uh, perfection is. That's not the case. In fact, the material world is not evil. God created he the heavens and earth. He created the material world. So this is not a contrast between the spiritual and the physical or material world. It is a contrast between the world of God's holy order and the world of the rebellious order that's here on earth, the world of rebellion. We are born into a world of rebellion. 
So the cosmos that Jesus is speaking about here is the worldly system that we live in that has rebelled against God. I think it's um, the depravity of man and the sinfulness of man. I think G.K. Chesterton said that that was the most verifiable fact of the Bible. All you have to do is turn on the evening news. And you'll see that this world is in rebellion against God and God's order. So Jesus said to these Pharisees, you are from this rebellious worldly order. Um, the worldly system that is led by Satan and his demonic forces. The worldly system that seeks its own glory. This is how one of the ways you can tell between the two different systems, right? The, 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 the heavenly realm, the heavenly world, is one is the world that seeks to glorify God in all things, seeks the glory of God. This world, this earthly world, this rebellious world, seeks its own glory. And you can just meet somebody and tell the difference of which world they're operating in. You walk up to a person that they're seeking their own promotion, their own glory, their own riches, their own wealth. You have met somebody of this world. If you meet somebody who, whose purpose is the glory of God in all things, glory of God through their business, glory of God through their speech, through how they live, that's the difference between the two worlds. Christians ought to be operating out of that heavenly realm, that we do all things for God's glory. But oftentimes, those who name the name of Christ are still seeking their own glory. They're still living in the world, and they are of the world. How can that be? I don't know. Sometimes, you know, we can try to straddle two worlds, but eventually we're going to have to go one way or the other, right? Mankind was made in the image of God. Our whole purpose to exist was to reflect the glory of God. But this rebellious world no longer wants to reflect God's glory. That's why people desire to be rich and famous. That there's something innate, there's something, we, we know that we have been made for greatness. But this world is looking for their own greatness in themselves, and they're trying to promote themselves to become great. We were made for greatness, but that greatness is only realized when we reflect the glory of God. That's when we become great. So the Pharisees obviously were a group of religious leaders that sought their own glory. Jesus pointed that out many times. So it's clear they were from below. They were not out for the glory of God. They did not, not seek God's glory. But Jesus, on the other hand, was it was clear that he was from above because he always sought to glorify his Father in everything that he did everything he said. In fact, he says that, doesn't he? Everything that I say, I hear the Father saying. Everything I do, I see the Father doing. So everything he did, everything he said was reflecting the glory of God. I wish that were true of all Christians, wouldn't you? It would actually change the world if that were the case. Because so often we are reflecting the fallenness of the world rather than the glory of God. Well, in verse 24, 
Jesus said, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now here, notice the contrast. Here he uses the dative plural. Dative meaning in. In sin. In your sins. There's the plural. The S, the plural in the end. The sins. So what Jesus is saying here is, is that that I told you that you would die in your sins. This includes not just the sin of unbelief, but if they are unbelievers, they will also bear the guilt of all the sins that they've ever committed. If they refuse to believe, they will be judged for all of their sins. That's what hell is. That's what the final judgment is for those who are thrown into hell. Those who refused Christ and his sacrifice to take away all of our sins, who refused to believe in Christ, either Christ will pay for our sins or you will pay for your sins. Which is it? And that's what Jesus is saying. You refuse to believe, therefore you will die in all of your sins. You will be guilty and you will be punished for everything that you have done. But notice what he says here in verse 24 again. He says, I told you that you would die in your sins. But there's a great little word here, but he says, unless. Notice that word, unless. You will die in your sins unless. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now, we have been talking about ego of me a lot, and we're going to be talking about a lot more in this gospel. You know, ego of me, I am the covenant name of God, Yahweh of the Old Testament. And that word he, if you're ESV or whatever translation put the he in there, that's supplied. So Jesus literally says to them, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. What is he saying? Unless you believe that I am God, Yahweh, in the flesh, you will die in your sins. And, and there is a world of difference, by the way, between those who die in their sins and those who die in Christ. Remember when Lazarus died, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die physically, Though we may die, yet shall he live. He's the resurrection. We all have an appointment with death. Someday, if we're still in this, in this building, many of us sitting in the pews will be right out here in a casket. But Jesus said, even though you may physically die, yet shall you live. I've done many, many funerals. I've done funerals for saved people, for Christians. I've done funerals for lost people. And I can tell you, as a pastor, there is a world of difference between those two kinds of funerals. It's the difference between hope and hopelessness. I can't even describe you some of the excruciating pain I've seen on parents who lost their children, who had no hope, didn't raise them in a Christian home, didn't believe in Christ, and the kind of excruciating hopelessness that I saw in them compared to uh, 
parents who lost their children, who were Christians, who were believers, and who had hope in the resurrection, who had hope in Christ. World of difference. Kent Hughes gives two, ex- two examples from history. One is Thomas Paine. You all know that name. He was one of the great intellectuals who helped found this country. And he wrote the book, The Age of Reason, that led many people away from God and uh, many people away from Scripture. In fact, Thomas Paine's whole life was kind of contrary to God, leading people into reason rather than trusting God. But in Paine's, on Paine's deathbed, this is his final words in Thomas Paine's, on his deathbed, the day he died. He said this, I would give worlds if I had them, that the age of reason had not been published. Oh, Lord, help me. Christ, help me. Here's an atheist, by the way. Oh, God, what have I done to suffer much? But there is no God, he says. But if there should be, what will become of me hereafter? Good question. Stay with me, for God's sake. Send even a child to stay with me, for it is hell to be alone. I ever, if ever the devil had an agent, I have been that one, he said. And here's a man of unbelief. This is what it looks like to die in your sins, to have no hope. Contrast that with Isaac Watts, who was a contemporary of pain. He was called the evangelical poet and composed some of the greatest hymns that we still sing today. On the day he passed, he said this, It is a great mercy that I have no manner of fear or dread of death. I could, if God please, lay my head back and die without terror this afternoon. And that's the very thing he did. What a difference that Christ made. What a difference in hope and hopelessness. What a difference in an eternal destination. Well, the Pharisees responded in verse 25. They said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. The Greek construction in English, if you were to to translate it directly, it is you who are, which is not unusual for Greek, but it probably tells you that likely they asked Jesus something like this. Who do you think you are? And Jesus' reply was just what I've been telling you from the beginning, which is most likely something like, why do, I, why do I even speak to you at all? I've been telling you this over and over and over again. In verse 26, I have much to say about you and much to judge, he says, but he who sent me is true, and I declare that the world I declare to the world what I have heard from him. I have much to say about you and much to judge, he says. Jesus wasn't done yet with them. He was not going to go into all the judgments yet because it was not his hour. He was going to reserve that to the end. I have much to say about you and much to judge, he said. Now, If you want to see what Jesus had more to say to them and his judgments on them, 
you can turn, and we won't turn there, but I'll give you a few examples. From uh, You can read Matthew chapter 23. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus pronounces seven woes, judgments on the scribes and Pharisees. I'll give you an example. Matthew 23, starting in verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, he says, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. And then verse 27, there's more, but I'll just give you a couple of more in verse 27. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. doesn't matter what you look like on the outside. It's what's on the inside that Jesus is concerned about. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. This was the judgment that Jesus was going to reserve for about six months later. I have more to say to you and more judgments. And this was it. And it was the last straw because after Jesus pronounced these judgments and woes on them, Matthew 26 tells us that they got together and they decided that it was time to get rid of Jesus and kill him. And a few days later, they did it. It was likely his pronouncement and judgments on them that was the last straw that finally got his. Why didn't Jesus do it right then, six months before? Because it would be the last straw. It was not his hour. So let's look back at our text in verse 25 and 26. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world that I have heard from him. And then Je John adds in verse 27, they did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. And then in verse 28 and 29, it says, So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, you will, then you will know that I am he. Uh, again, he is supplied. Then you will know I am ego or me, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, you will know that I am. Now John records three times in this gospel, Jesus saying, if I be lifted up, lifted up the Son of Man. Here's one of them. The first one we saw in John 3, 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So what does he mean by being lifted up? Well, it, it's clear in John chapter 12, verse 32 and 33, 
Jesus said, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And then John adds this, He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So when Jesus said, If I be lifted up, he's talking about the cross. He's talking about his crucifixion. That is the hour that Jesus was going toward. So when you have lifted up the Son of Man, in essence what Jesus is saying, when you have crucified the Son of Man on the cross, then you will know that I am he. Now there are a lot of things that happened on that day. We'll cover that in the future. But whatever happened, it caused one Roman soldier to say, surely this is, this was the Son of God by all the events, the earthquakes, the darkness, and all the things that happened. This may also be a reference to Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, when Isaiah said, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. The servant, of course, is the Messiah. My servant will be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And what's interesting is as we read the New Testament, we find that Christ's exaltation is his crucifixion. The crucifixion is the exaltation of Christ. Since he humbled himself as a servant to the point of death, even death on the cross, Paul tells us in Philippians that he has given a name above all names that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. When Jesus is lifted up on the cross, he is lifted up into the Father's presence and then he will return. After his death and resurrection, he returns to have the same glory that he, he had before the foundation of the world. And so in a very real sense, the cross of Christ is the glorification of Christ. It seems so opposite, doesn't it? He won by losing. <laughs> it's his glorification. The world sees weakness there. But for those who are being saved, we see the power of God and the glory of Christ there. In fact, John chapter 12, verse 23 Jesus said to them, the hour has come. He's talking about the cross. The hour has come. That's what he means by the hour. But notice what he says. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Christ's glorification and his crucifixion are one and the same. He is glorified by his death on the cross. And at the cross, Jesus is fully revealed. At the cross, the Jews will know the truth that he is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Now, clearly, this does not mean that everyone would understand and be fully converted at Christ's crucifixion. But if they do come to Jesus, if they do come to know him, they will not come to know him from that point on without looking to the cross. The cross defines him. If it weren't for the cross, we would see Jesus as just another pretender, just another false Messiah. But the cross reveals that Jesus is the Son of God. And that's why we can't even preach Christ and salvation in Christ without preaching the cross. 
he is revealed as the Son of God. We see that Jesus is the Christ, that he is God in the flesh who came to die for our sins. At the cross, we see, as Paul says, the demonstration of God's love. Have you ever thought, God, do you really love me? God's answer is yes. Look to the cross. It's a demonstration of God's love for us. At the cross, we see God the Father judging God the Son for our sins. And at the cross, Christ's humility and obedience is rewarded. And that's why he is exalted above all names. He is glorified at the cross. Now, in verse 28 and 29, Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And actually, when he says, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, probably should be a period there, a full stop. And then he says, I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me, and he has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Now he goes on to speak about the Father, that he does nothing on his own. In other words, the teaching of the cross, all of Christ's teaching, and even his death on the cross was in complete submission to the will of the Father. And because Jesus always, always did the Father's will, he always knew the presence of the Father. Even the night he was crucified, in John 16, 32, Jesus says, Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone, Jesus said. But then he says this, Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Jesus always experienced the presence of the Father. He always knew the presence of his Father. And he always did what was pleasing to the Father. That last line kind of caught my attention. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. question is, can we say that? As Christ's followers, as Christians, can we say, I always do what is pleasing to the Father? Unfortunately, we can't, but that's not an excuse, is it? Everything that Jesus did pleased the Father. That's the standard. Every word out of the mouth of Christ pleased the Father. Can we say that? Is God pleased with everything that we say? I doubt it. Is God pleased with everything that we do? No. But isn't that the aim and the goal of the Christian life? In 2 Corinthians 5, 9, the Apostle Paul said, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim 
to please him. This is what he's telling the Corinthians. Our aim as Christians should always be to please him. Colossians 1.10 says, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. How do we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? He says, Fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That's our goal. That is what it means to be a Christ follower, to continue to grow in our knowledge of God, to increase in our fruits for every good work, to be fully pleasing to him, to that to be our goal in life, to be pleasing to the Lord in everything that we say and everything that we do. Jesus always did what was pleasing. He always said what was pleasing. And he felt the presence of the Lord always with him. I think oftentimes we don't feel the presence of the Lord with us because we're not aiming to please him. We're not walking in his will. And then you may say, well, how do we know God's will? To walk in it. Well, that's a good question. It would take another long sermon to flesh this out. How are we, are we to know God's will? Well, in this book, take another look at guidance. Bob Munford compared finding God's will with a with a sea captain docking uh, the, a sea captain's docking procedure, particularly in Italy. There's a harbor in Italy that is right on a very narrow channel and many ships have wandered off one side or the other and were shipwrecked because they would they would hit the rocks and and so there's it's a very narrow channel there in Italy so one of the things that they did to help guide the ships in the port is they put three lights out in the bay toward toward the shore and the ship's captains know that if they can maneuver their ship where those three lights become one light, they're going right down where they need to go. If they begin to see them separate, they know they're off course. And Mumford suggests that God has also provided three beacons for us. And the same rules of navigation apply. These three lights must line up before it's safe for, to, uh, for us to proceed. And the three lights in the harbor that guide us is, number one, the Word of God. That is the objective standard, God's Word, right? So God's Word. We know that according to God's Word, just from the wisdom of God's Word, right there we will have the wisdom to be able to make godly decisions. He gives us His Word so that we would be wise. So He guides us with His Word. And then He guides us with the Holy Spirit. Remember, He said the Spirit will be in you, He'll be with you and in you. And there is the witness of the Holy Spirit. That is kind of a subjective witness. It's inside of us. And, and so the Word of God and the witness of the Holy Spirit need to line up. And then finally, the circumstances of our lives, the divine providence that God is working out within us, those need to line up. And so the Word of God, the Holy Spirit, and the circumstances need to line up. And when they do, they will guide us in the will of God. Now, George Mueller said something very similar to this 
and he's talking about the importance of not just having the Spirit but also the Word because the Spirit can be very subjective. And a lot of people say, well, God told me, you know, to go do this. And that could, well, he didn't tell me. He told me to tell you to go do this, right? You ever heard that? God told me to tell you. That can be very subjective, but it needs to line up with the Word of God. And Mueller says this. I, he says, I will seek the will of the Spirit of God through or in connection with the Word of God. The Spirit and the Word must be combined, he says. If I look to the Spirit alone without the Word, I lay myself open to great delusions also. If the Holy Ghost guides us at all, he will do it according to the Scriptures and never contrary to them. Jesus always knew what the will of the Father was. He had that kind of relationship with him. You and I oftentimes struggle with that. But he gives us his word. He gives us his spirit. And we know that his providence is working. And when those things line up, we can know and do the will of God for his glory. And that's why we do it, right? Not for our own glory, but for the glory of God. That's why we do everything that we do, or at least we should do it all for the glory of God. Now, what's great in verse 30 and I close with this it says and he was saying these things many believed in him next week Jesus is going to help them to know what that belief entails so many may believe on the surface some may really believe and so next week Jesus is going to help them discover if their belief was genuine or not, something that we all need to know as well. We are grateful to the Lord, even in this conversation with the Jews. Long time ago, that we can gather from this direction and a word from the Lord.